Hey listeners, before we begin the episode today, just a quick shout out to those of you who are in active recovery. You know you want to date, but you're overwhelmed or frustrated with the process um, of dating and recovery. We have an opportunity just for you. Uh, check out our new website, One Layer Deeper, O-N-E, LayerDeeper.com, uh, where we have information about our weekend dating and recovery intensives. Uh, these are awesome. They're a lot of fun. They help you dive deep into the issues that uh, keep you from dating successfully, having the relationships that you want, um, and also helping you find the kind of people that uh, you won't avoid their phone calls after a first date. So uh, we have two events upcoming. We're going to have a weekend for women. That'll be October 11th through 14th. And a weekend for men. That'll be November 1st through 4th. Uh, So if I'm talking to you, active recovery, and uh, you're frustrated with the whole dating process and would like to experience a deep change there, One Layer Deeper is for you. So check us out at OneLayerDeeper.com. Hope you enjoyed the episode. for sharing podcast the podcast where we explore all things recovery healing and relationship remember to subscribe and download episodes in the itunes store the google play store or on the podbean app you can find more thanks for sharing at www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com or on facebook at facebook.com slash healing paths that's path with an s hi everyone welcome to thanks for sharing i'm jackie p i'm john t Today on our show, we have a guest, uh, Leonard Bade, joining us. He's in the Seattle, Texas area. Um, not that those are the area, area. <laughs> but he, he spends time going back and forth. And Leonard is a, as a friend of mine. I've known Leonard for, what, a couple, maybe going on three to four or five years, maybe. Um, and I've learned a lot from Leonard over the years, and uh, call, I'm grateful to call him a friend and a mentor. So welcome to the show, Leonard. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jackie. Appreciate it. Yeah, we um, we invited Leonard here today. Um, he's a bit of an expert and a force for good in the realm of um, harnessing group dynamics to be the most effective they can be and, and to help the individuals in the group. So uh, we've asked Leonard to come on today to talk to us about community and culture and the power of group dynamics. So Leonard, can you can you start by telling us a little bit about how you came to this being a realm of expertise and interest for you well it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a story Um, my first experience around group dynamics was about 35 years ago Uh, from my recovery from addiction I I was involved in uh, therapy groups and I was always struck by the power of change uh, in the group process and the dynamics of individuals different styles the family dynamics and uh, Uh, I was in a a, a support group for a number of years, very intensive, close support group. And uh, really, uh, uh, really was really struck by the power of those groups. And then as I worked in organizations and worked on leadership teams, actually participated on leadership teams, I started seeing some of the same dynamics and dysfunctions occur in organizations that would occur in family dynamics and uh, began to explore group process in terms of how it impacts organizations both uh, positively and negatively 
around leadership. So uh, that was my first entree into leadership development. So uh, I, I ran in, I uh, was able to work with some very dynamic people who have a long history with group dynamics that really helped me understand how to work with groups in effective ways and overcome a lot of barriers that people typically run into in organizations. Mm-hmm. So what, what would you say in, in the time that you spent doing that, what would you say are some of the most obvious barriers to groups being effective for the people in them? Um, you know, I think at a, at a real fundamental level, uh, the, uh, some of the, the, the greatest barrier is the degree of safety or the degree of fear that people actually experience in organizations or in groups. Um, oftentimes organizations, rightfully so, will have a vision, mission, values, and then they have strategies, goals, and, and uh, tactics that they spend a lot of time on, but forget about the human element. And uh, people, what, what we really need to understand is that people need to feel safe and trustworthy and have a sense of caring and bonding underneath the, all the strategy in terms of organizational design. So uh, what, what I believe is that people need, in terms of creating safety in group process or in 12-step groups, in organizations and relationships is how do you, how does one become vulnerable to be able to under, to know each other for who they really are, having authentic conversations and uh, having authentic relationships. And when people begin to bond, then um, they, uh, the level of intimacy comes together and um, uh you know, then the, whatever the task is at hand, it seems to be much, it's just almost like rolling off a log. It's much easier mm-hmm. to accomplish your vision, goals, and strategies. And the, the combination of those two elements really, I believe, creates success for terms of communities and organizations. Mm-hmm. And, and you and I have talked about this because I, I think the, uh, the irony here maybe is that for most organizations, professional organizations, Um, those are things that they think need to be left at the door, right? This, this, what is this about trust? I mean, you just do your job, right? Or this idea of connection and vulnerability and um, connectivity and intimacy that that just doesn't belong in the workplace, right? Or that's just something that you do in a therapy office, but you don't tell anybody about that at work, right? There's this, it's a separate thing. And, and to bring that into the workplace, it's just not really done. And yet our workplaces are suffering. Well, that's true. And I used to get very frustrated when I would see people call these processes and these group dynamics soft skills. Mm-hmm. Well, I really think it's more hard skill, a hard, much harder skill to do that than it is to uh, configure a computer or develop a strategy and set goals and and such for mm-hmm. people to be able to be honest and vulnerable with one another in terms of who they really are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, yeah. That's that's what I believe around that. And I've you know I've had some experience with this in the past, and I. I really learned the hard way when it first really uh, came to light in an organizational setting. I was working for an organization that uh, 
the guest satisfaction and the guests came first and whether we made money or not was really secondary based on the, the ownership uh, vision. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden our satisfaction with guests take, took a nosedive and our profits went up and we said, look, we have to have both of these going, both of mm-hmm. these going in the same direction at one time. And my boss said, we, we, I need your help. And it was a hotel business. And I'd studied Ritz Carlton who had, who had uh, received the Malcolm Baldridge award. And I knew everything about it. So I said, I can do this. So for about a year and a half, everybody had a little vision they would carry around in their card. We started measuring performance. We'd have teams. We had everything that a Malcolm Baldrige Award winner would would uh, have in their organization. And after a year and a half, it came to a total standstill. And I had no idea why. I thought that I was doing very well along the way. And what ultimately happened, the leadership team that I was that I was involved with says, we don't know if we really trust you, if this is the right way to go. And I got it. Something clicked. And then uh, we brought in a gentleman who had studied group dynamics, written books on it. It was very experiential in his approach. And basically, he understood that I was scaring people because the more you measure people and hold people accountable, there's a fear involved that they will not be able to accomplish what they needed to do because we didn't have that safety of the team. Mm-hmm. So that's where we had to abandon everything and become vulnerable and begin to understand who we were as people, uh, take the masks off every day that driving to work, the mask that we would put on, start to take these masks off. And then we would, would know each other also for our gifts. What are we really here to contribute at work? And what are those areas of development? And we began to be able to support each other in developing uh, each other. We knew what our strengths were. And uh, ultimately, over a four-year period, we had incredible results, both financially, uh, team dynamics, and uh, guest satisfaction. So that was my big aha moment. And yeah. uh, very grateful to have had that experience. Yeah, that's so interesting to me, because I think whether it's in business or the 12-step rooms, or even like in families, I think there's this uh, there's this expectation that we have, if we have a unifying narrative or if we have a myth that we're all bought into, any other problems are, are out the window. Like we're all just, you know, you, you took a job at this hotel because you believe in what this hotel does. And I think human, or you came to this 12 step group because you want to get sober. And I think human behavior is a lot more diverse than that. And there's a lot of different motivations. And so I think we run into a risk in a group where we say, well, here's our unifying narrative and, and here's, here's the unifying goal without actually having the group create that narrative and that goal. I, I don't think it works to, to put the sign in the ground and people rally around that and then it works fine. It really has to be something that the group comes up with and creates on their own. Well, that's right. That's right. So when I, people ask what I do, I say we, I help create uh, communities of uh, collaboration, accountability, and service. So the collaboration is how do you bring people together once there's some sense of trust with one another and not hiding in an office or withholding information or talking behind people's back. Those are typical things that happen in unhealthy structures. But if you have this unifying narrative that you talked about, people are all participate in, in, in the creation of this culture with new narratives, then, um, you know, the, the opportunity for success is, is fivefold, tenfold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll give you an example of that. We, um, over a four-year period, we do surveys of the management staff, 60 people in a team of 500 people in this organization. 
and said, what do you like most about working here? And in this case, it was money and the benefits and, mm. and flexible time and things that typically aren't at the top of the scale. Mm. And after four years, we, we continued to do that survey over a period of time. And the top four indicators were people's satisfaction with this organization, where I, my uh, input was sought for decisions that affected me directly. Mm. Uh, I was able to collaborate with team development. Everything that all the top four indicators were all about engagement. And, mm-hmm. um, and and participation. So it, it was pretty fascinating to see that result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which that was it? all about people's involvement, right? It was about right. it's about everybody's creating the narrative on every on every aspect, whether the hiring process, whether it's you know, sixty people in a room co-creating strategy over a day's period of time with ultimate data. So there's there's so many ways that that, that can happen, and that's how we create the culture of collaboration. And and I love that example because. It, as I work with clients a lot of times, I mean, I, I think that it's important that the job that they spend so much time and hours in a week working at, um, you know, covers their bills and provides a financial um, income that is, it just provides some security, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's very important. But when I'm working with clients, maybe around work issues, and I'll say to them, well, what else is important though, right? I find that a lot of people will tolerate a lot of unhealthy things in their life and not even recognize the personal price that they pay mm-hmm. because they get benefits or because it's a good pay, mm-hmm. right? And, and when we start talking about this, oftentimes one of the questions that comes up is, well, what are my options, right? And, and they look right. at their work, which, you know, and, and, and they think it's about benefits and it's about money. And, right. and they look at it as that's the only options my work provides, mm-hmm. right? And, and so when we start talking about, well, what about passion, right? What about creativity? What about visioning? And, and they start to realize how dead they are at work. So that's not right. surprising to me that after you went in and worked with this organization for four years, that they were aware that there were different options, right? That they could care about. And that being ha- having their opinion um, sought after and listened to, um, even if it didn't make an overall difference in what the direction was, that that all of a sudden becomes something that they're like, yeah, no, I don't want to work at a place where that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, that's so true. And we adopted a set of values about engagement. It was, it was one of those key values. And, um, for instance, when we were to hire someone, there would be a group of eight people, six to eight people, who would be directly around that person, above, side, and below that person that would participate in the, in the, uh, in the process. So people not only just went through an interview process and check references, which is the standard deal, but we would actually create, they would, the group would create like five vignettes that this person would need to know, typically, very fundamentally, to be able to role play and demonstrate in front of the group. Mm. So two things would happen is that when this example, but uh, a person coming into the organization would understand our values, our lived values, and that the demonstration of this process, the people making decisions and the, and the uh, non-traditional way of their entry into the organization is what they're getting into. So uh, that that would self some certain people would self-select in or out just based on that process. 
-hmm. and that the people, six or eight people who made this decision collectively on each vignette and collectively for the whole outcome of the decision have have a vested buy-in for this person's success. Hmm. So that is, that's just one key element in terms of, you know, the impact of, of collaboration. Mm -hmm. But there has to be the safety at the bottom of this. Uh, You know, what do we, what I, what, you know, back to old Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, air, food, water, shelter, Mm -hmm. and that those needs have to be taken care of before you get into a more uh, creative aesthetic mode. Mm-hmm. And when we, if a person that may come into you that says, you know, it's, it's benefits and money and, and the rest of it is like, you're just kind of tolerating it. If you initiate a change there and all of a sudden there's going to be more accountability or you start doing performance measures then the fear automatically comes in because they're totally reliant on the benefits and the, mm-hmm. and the pay, then that's where the fear comes in. If I lose this, my security and on that on that Maslow's hierarchy in my family security will be impacted, and that's where what what indicates the necessity of creating the safety around that in terms of human human behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one one of the things, Leonard, that I've really appreciated about learning from you and and talking to you about how this works is um, you bring recovery principles into the business place. And so I'm, I'm curious with, with our people listening, like when they show up to 12 step rooms, there's already a culture established and, and in any 12 step groups, I would say that starts like the culture comes from the book. Like these are the steps. These are the, the, what's the other, like the traditions, the traditions, these are steps, these are traditions. This is how we handle things. Like how does a person coming into a group, um, how do you get assimilated into an already established group like that, like in the rooms of recovery or how, how do you change a culture in a group that to, to make it work better for the people in there? Now is the question, how does, uh, how do we change a culture in existing established, uh, 12 step groups that have a propensity for, for vulnerability? Yeah. Well, I don't know that I would change 12 step groups necessarily. I mean, 12 step groups, um, really practice these these fundamentals because at the at the foundation what we ask is people become open honest and willing right Mm -hmm. uh and being able to when someone comes in like when i first entered i was scared to death and i sat in the back row because people were laughing and sharing and the joy and the happiness and all the unconditional love and intimacy in that group was foreign to me Mm -hmm. but once i started have getting more courage and participating and being of service and sharing with others, I started to warm up. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea in 12 step groups is, is that you, we take a small risk and then there's a moderate risk and then there's a high risk of sharing who we really are and becoming vulnerable in terms of actually taking the steps. And, um, you know, it's interesting how they're designed because steps one, two, and three, it's first that I'm, looking at myself and then I'm believing in somebody in a higher power. And then it's about looking at my inventory. Then the steps six through nine are similar. Six is looking at my defects of character and shortcomings. And then, um, you know, making amends to others. And then, uh, you know, the actual conscious contact with a higher power. And then it does this, you know, continues in step 10 daily inventory, conscious contact and helping others. So there's that whole cycle that people may not actually dissect and take a look in at, look at my own behavior, 
believing that somebody uh, higher than me can help out and then um, working with others. And that is, you know, we don't call it 12 steps, but the practices of human behavior and sharing and acceptance and creating an intimacy uh, and believing in the vision was maybe the higher power and then being of service to others in the organization with the engagement there's a strong parallel. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think I was talking with a client just this morning and uh, he had brought up in one of his recovery groups um, that he felt like they were moving away from some of the more vulnerable sharing of feelings, being open and honest about that. And, and that he was kind of not feeling safe within that recovery group, right? Fortunately, one of the other recovery groups and his sponsor isn't kind of of that mindset, but he had brought that kind of to the group conscious um, in, in one of his groups. And, and the message he got back is we're beyond that, right? right? We've moved beyond vulnerability and feelings and now we're into tough love. And I said to him, I, I think that's a mistake, right? And I think you're right in your gut to feel like this isn't healthy for me and to kind of take a distance and take a step back because tough love isn't beyond vulnerability, right? But vulnerability is beyond tough love. Right. Well, you're talking specifically around 12 step groups, right? Right. 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 Well, I think there, you know, just as in like in leadership, there's usually a two by two grid where there's four different styles Mm -hmm. of leadership. You know, there's mm-hmm. controlling and empathetic and creative, such and such. I think that that's common for people in general. So when we come into 12-step groups, at least my experience over 35 years, is people have different styles, right? There are some notable 12-step folks who are very direct and very focused and very structured in how they support people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that didn't work for me necessarily. But, um, you know, my great-grand sponsor is a – guy who uh, was very well known, Chuck C. And he had a, mo- a more open type of a, of a uh, approach about, you know, the group is, it's all about love. God is love, and love and service. And uh, it was a gentler form. And that's what I gravitated towards. So if you take the, the extreme of somebody that says just love and service versus somebody who's very regimented, the person that's very regimented will help a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Because that's maybe what they need. You know, there are people who maybe come off the streets need a lot of structure. People in general need lots of structure. So we, we accept that. And um, so I think there's different styles. And people just have to be patient and find the style that they need inside mm-hmm. those rooms and across the country. Mm-hmm. And it takes all the styles, I really believe, to make it work. Just like in yeah. organizations. It's, 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 it's embracing diversity. Mm-hmm. We have not just diversity in terms of uh, uh, gender, race, creed, but also in terms of different styles and forming a group. What are all the different styles that one needs to really, you know, like in an organization, you need the creatives to do the uh, marketing and creativity. You need people right. who are very detail focused for the accounting and financials. You need the nurturing folks. Mm-hmm. And then the leadership folks who have more of a plan and charisma and all that. So it's about how do you, how do you become conscious of that? I think mm-hmm. it, it, there's a great overlay between, yes. between recovery and human behavior change and leadership change. 
I believe there are two concentric circles and you overlay those. When I, come, when I work with executives in transformation, I may use a lot of 12-step principles, but never use the language of it. You just use yeah. a different language and change is change. Right. Right. And, and I think I, and I love that. And this is one of the things I, I've always observed with you is this appreciation of diversity, mm -hmm. right? And that there's different functions and there's different roles and there's not one right way to do things. Right. Right. No, that's, that's true. So when, you know, we form teams, you know, we may have six or seven teams going that would meet on some regular basis dealing with certain issues in the organizations. And, um, you know, in each one of those, you have a diverse group, but that's part of helping people. When you create that safety and maybe when a group forms, who am I, who are you? And then who are we? Mm -hmm. And we start off with a very, a very, um, uh, low risk, but typically when I work with executives, and I'll come back to your point in a moment, we, uh, we, uh, you know, when there's a, they're ready for a moderate level of risk, we'll ask them, take 15 minutes to write down seven significant events in your life that have impacted you and have made you who you are today, thresholds you've crossed or achievements that you've accomplished. And you'll have seven minutes to share with the group. And we may go around eight or 10 people. And I'll certainly lead off with my, my background and my experience being a human resource executive from, you know, into addiction and, and the recovery and, and the whole thing just to set the tone. And people, when, once they go around, that group is never the same again, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. uh, because that is their first experience where they've had permission to actually share who they really are. And we always look at uh, Joseph Campbell's work. And one of the things he said that was profound is, in human nature, one of our greatest needs is to know and be known. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just don't allow that in, in organizations or in the world. So every encounter I have, whether it's sitting down with a person I'm just getting to know or in a small group or with a family, it's one of the questions we can ask for people to really get to know each other. So in that context, there we, we understand that people come from different backgrounds, different demographics, different family histories that all come together. And once that foundation is laid where people begin to have a sense of caring for one another and understanding acceptance uh, and with all the diversity that's involved in that, then you can go accomplish any task. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's something that we are culturally trained to keep out of our task-oriented relationships or task-oriented groups is like, we're just here to accomplish something. Your personal stuff doesn't matter. But I, I really think it's the personal stuff that informs how we're going to do this or even why we're going to do this. And, um, you know, I found great value in knowing about that with the teams and the groups that I'm, I'm a part of. Um, Cause you're right. Like there's, there's a level of buy-in after sharing like that, where things are never the same again. Um, right the group can't go back to this. We're uncomfortable strangers now. Maybe we're uncomfortable acquaintances now, but um, we know something more. That's something more for us to work with. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think uh, what uh, comes up for me too is there are different, just like there's different styles and, and diverse characteristics with individuals, the same in organizations. And uh, so what we're talking about here, I think applies generally, but you know, when you look into a military organization, it's a very power and control command and control structure. And that's 
probably very relevant for what's needed in that organization. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, but you know, when, when the, when the, the platoon or the, the group of, of people on a smaller group are, are experiencing casual time, they do get to know each other too. Right. But I, there, so there are some organizations such as that or the hospital systems that are very risk adverse by nature mm -hmm. because of the degree of, of, uh, sensitivity to the human human element on one end and on the other end here in Seattle we have the these young startups that are doing all this tech startups and you know they're footloose fancy free smart and creative mm -hmm. and collaborative and they're that's the other end of the scale so we have to understand maybe what the organization's goals and needs are mm -hmm. as well around this mm -hmm. right yeah and that's one of the things that strikes me about the diversity is um, it, I don't think it's necessarily this kind of setting or this kind of task requires this kind of leadership. Again, I think that comes from the group members of, of this is where we want to go and this is why we want to go there. And how are we going to do that in a way that best interfaces with all of us? Um, you know, I, I think it's really hard for groups to become something that they're not um, for the sake of getting a task done. Right. Right. So that's, that's another part of it is, you know, what's the problem the group is trying to solve or the goal or the vision that's where the vision comes in handy is sort of a guiding force in terms of direction. And then you put the values under that, <clears throat> that so many organizations will create, spend a lot of time and money, consultants coming in and create this vision and then the mission, mission and then the values. And you see them on the wall, right? Mm -hmm. But how often do we really look at this? And we believe in the work we do is, if the values are stated behaviors or stated values, there's got to be a behavior attached to each one of those that's measured over time. And how are we really doing to keep it conscious in the forefront so that those are lived values and not just posted behind a frame on a wall someplace. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in a recovery community, right? Whether that's in how you live your life, right? But understanding what are the values that I profess and how do those show up in the different arenas that I live my life in? Right. Well, you know, it, it's uh, in the family dynamics are probably the hardest one to really address this in, but what I want to say about that, but you do, you deal with families all the time, husbands, wives, children, fathers, mothers, mm -hmm. and what, are, what does the family have its own vision statement? And I don't work in that realm as much as you do. What is the vision we have? What are our values? Have we really sat down and collaborated mm -hmm. and, and uh, made a decision on this? What's our mission statement for this family? I know it sounds rather nebulous, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the process of actually doing that and then being able to be vulnerable and share, because I think the fear in families, especially when there's dysfunction going on, just like there are in organizations where you may have a disruptive executive and everybody's morphing their behavior around that person to uh, adapt to the situation and becomes dysfunctional, right? Mm -hmm. so how does one, how does one, you know, being able to be honest and share and, and be open in, in terms of their family systems as well? I mean, is that? Yeah. Yeah, right. I absolutely. And I, I think sometimes, you know, some of the things that we find is maybe, um, maybe early in the marriage, right? Especially with these couples, if they, if they got young married, right. And this isn't, or they got married young and this isn't like their second marriage or something like that. But 
but they were almost too young to really know how to define their mission in the marriage, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe their families helped define what their mission statement was in their in their marriage. Maybe their religion helped to define what their that mission statement was. And what they find is that as they get older, that's not really their mission statement, right? That's not really coming internally from them, but they don't say anything, right? So then they can create or, or maybe they already had a secret life going, but that secret life really starts to take off now um, in terms of the addiction and the acting out. Um, and a lot of times when we're getting couples in for recovery, yeah, we're having them talk about letting yourself be known and who are you, right? And if you really don't agree with this, you, you need to let them know. Right. And, and maybe, maybe the partner says, well, I, I can't like, that is just such a deal breaker for me that if you don't believe in this, or if this isn't part of your mission statement, we're not going to be together. Oh, okay. Right. But actually they start to figure out that for the couples who make it, they start to figure out they never really defined it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And, right. and that's part of the recovery work is saying, like you were saying, who am I? Who are you? Who are we? Right. And then, and then the goals and the tasks and the visions come from knowing that information. Well, that's a very good point. And, um, you know, I think it's important to be aware of all the cultural influences that come down on, on uh, families and systems in general, uh, with families, you there's generational behavior and, and influence that trickles down and we're not aware of that. So I think it's really key for families to be able to understand how do we get where we are? Mm-hmm. What happened the last two, three, four generations and the, the positive and then the dysfunctional aspects of that to trickle down to where we are and the resilience that we have experienced to, to be able to move forward and yeah. become so that awareness. And then on a cultural level, you know, you mentioned religion, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the political environment, uh, the global environment, the modernity and consumerism and all that, that that's, that's flashed at us every day. It's mm-hmm. a, you know, it's so it's a, it's a huge, uh, amount of, uh, influence that comes on individuals and families. So it takes a lot of, uh, awareness and courage to really be able to take that step and try to individuate mm-hmm. ourselves from all the influences that have come after us in mm-hmm. organizations or otherwise. And, and I would say one of the things that sticks out to me, I mean, I've learned a lot from you over the years, but one of the things, um, and I was recently looking at, you know, one of the times that we'd been together doing some group work and I had written in my notebook, right? This is the most effective way I have ever seen feedback handled, mm-hmm. right? And, and I have learned so much from you about the art of giving feedback, the value of feedback, right? And just being able to kind of prepare yourself that feedback is feedback, right? And it's necessary right. and we need it. And actually, you know, cause the, I mean, there are times I'm like, I don't want to know what they think about me. Right? Right. Like, that's, too, that's right. too much. That's too scary. But actually understanding that, no, it's actually not that scary. Mm-hmm. Um, right. It's vulnerable. Right. And, and depending on the person giving it, you know, I don't want them to be reckless in giving me that feedback, but actually that art of feedback, I just, I haven't, I hadn't up until that time, I had not seen it so effectively taught and executed or modeled 
Um, so could you say a little bit about feedback? Well, it goes back to the fundamentals, I believe. Um, say if you're in a small group and you're giving and receiving feedback, it's, you know, have, has the groundwork been uh, established in terms of creating that sense of safety and care? Mm-hmm. That to be able to have that fer- fertile ground established first, and then when it comes time to feedback, that I believe the the person who's giving it does not intend harm. They they it's framed in a way that's neutral, and it may be accompanied by some questions to have you help process and understand what the feedback means to you, and if it really fits, you know. And I believe you probably do this naturally in your in your therapeutic environment. Mm-hmm. But also the person receiving the feedback to believe that the person that's providing it has the best intent. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, uh, I believe people, people giving feedback is about, you know, how do we deliver it in a way where a person can hear it? So if I'm going to give that feedback, how do I believe a person is going to hear it and be sensitive to that and frame it in a way that isn't uh, accusatory? Mm-hmm. The person feels uh, a sense of care that they don't have to be defensive around. Mm-hmm. I will tell you that if I'm in a situation that I'm not trusting somebody and I'm not sure that that their intent is not to do harm, then I'm going to be pretty defensive. You know, right. I, I may not become embattled with that person, but I'm going to be very cautious and maybe hear it, and that's going to be the end of it. Mm-hmm. But it, it all depends upon the human dynamic of the sense of, it goes back to safety and trust and intimacy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think oftentimes we want to skip over those because like you said, those are not soft skills. Those are hard skills. And, and I think recognizing the cost of skipping over those or just kind of skimming the surface on those and that what we are not setting up as a foundation and the cost down the road, if we don't do that. Yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking of. Like, I, I think in a group it takes some buy-in or it takes some, belief in the value of feedback, you know, cause most days of my life, I'm like, if you, if you catch me in a non, you know, just an average moment, it's, I don't want to know what people think about me. I don't know what, want to know what this is. Like you, you have to be in a certain place, I think, to see the value in feedback or, or desire feedback like that. Well, here's an interesting, um, and, and again, these various designs we've used, we have this design where an individual in an intact group will receive feedback from their group. But they, what they do first is they write down eight of their key strengths and six of their areas of what they perceive as their areas of development. Then they will do the same what they believe the group will tell them. And then their third column will be um, created for the group to actually provide that feedback. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit nerve-wracking to sit in front of a group. And this may be a couple hour process as people write and share, write and share. And what I have found 95% of the time is the person who self-evaluates falls way, way short uh, in their own, uh, identifying their own strengths where the group is able to, you know, you're going through two or three flip chart pads of strengths this person has. Mm-hmm. And the person then, who is being receiving the feedback is is five times more critical of themselves than the group mm-hmm. them, the, the group actually provides them feedback and it's usually you may have eight or six seven eight things that are uh, were incredibly uh, beneficial benefits and, and gifts that you have but it's usually only a couple things that you could take a look at to work on and those 
you know, uh, you know, one of my mentors says, you know, in our wound is where we find our greatest gifts. Now, you know, it's not necessarily a wound, but hey, there's a couple things to work on. And that is, is that a, that's a gift then to be able to work on that and, and develop that. And especially when, when the group then has gone through this design, which is a pretty high risk design, and they're there to help you develop that and, and support you and maybe help, you know, share their own skills and mentor a person to, to grow and get better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I like that. And I, it, it's having me reflect back on times where I've gotten that kind of really effective feedback from people I knew who were doing that in a loving, supportive way. And, and you're right. It is a whole different world from self-evaluation. Um, it's, I, I find it much more useful than anything I could come up with for myself or anything I could even find in a book and say, this is how it reflects on me. Like that real life lived experience and people reflecting that back and giving that back to you. Um, you don't get that anywhere else in any other way. Right. And what's imperative about doing this in a group process, again, the power of group is that if I am, if I know the group is going to see what I write and they're going to provide me feedback, I am compelled to really be a more honest and really be more mm-hmm. thoughtful about my self-reflection. The other thing that we look at in that process is, how close is my, my uh, assess, self-assessment with that of the group of eight or 10 people? Mm-hmm. And it's usually 80% at least, if not more. So, so the process helps, you know, you under, begin to understand the dynamics of that. And when you were looking at people being honest and, and have, it, have it right in front of you in terms of, it looks like, why am I trying to, uh, why am I fearful of being who I really am when everybody sees me already anyway, and, right. and it's a, it's a validating, I have never had, I've only one time there was somebody upset. I maybe done this 75, 80 times, but it's such a, uh, 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 a positive experience for people. And the, and the validation is very high. Mm-hmm. Which again, I think is one of those skills. And I think um, this can happen in the recovery rooms but sometimes people don't know how to take this skill from recovery and start to use it in their regular life or in their work life, which is how much we actually do notice about each other and how much information, just based on our simple observations, how much information we're picking up about other people, right? Mm-hmm. And, and whether that's because we're trained to be nice or we think that there's nothing to do about this anyway. And so why do I need to know this? We let go of so much of that information or we think we don't know what we actually do because we don't have a productive channel to take that information down. Right. And, and again, I'm surprised at how accurate sometimes people are in these sometimes simple observations Mm -hmm. or what seem like innocuous or meaningless observations, how much information they're actually picking up. Um, And to be able to give that right in a, in a kind of loving and helpful manner in the right setting to people instead of, I mean, sometimes I, I think you could easily just get annoyed or irritated because there's not a channel for that information to go down. Mm-hmm. in a way that's going to be helpful and productive and possibly bring about change. Right, right. Well, well, one of the experiences that we've had together is this uh, design called Permission to Be Open. Mm-hmm. And it's when you, for me, people, in the first hour or two, you, you, we have about, what, 
eight, uh, 12 or 20 questions about what do we see in this person, where they lived, how they live, birth order, family, you know, favorite activities and such. And uh, what we find is being able to assess people when you just first meet like you say, with just very little information, mm -hmm. but more, a lot more information than we ever thought of in terms of just people's body language, speech, appearance and such that we're able to nail it about 75% of the time, even knowing somebody after about an hour or two mm -hmm. or half yeah. a day. Right. So we, we, you know, and it's being aware of the signals we send off and then what we're picking up from other people and how it really impacts our judgment. So I, well, I think that's what applies. Yeah. And also what I think being honest about the fact that we make assumptions. Yeah. Right. Because that's yeah, the first, really. the first time I participated in that, it really challenged this, belief that I had gotten probably from a lot of different sources that says, do not make assumptions about people. And when I was given permission to be open about the fact that I made an assumption, right? And if I was wrong, okay, I'm wrong, right? But to, right. to really acknowledge that as human beings, we do make assumptions. And while we don't get married to those assumptions, meaning that uh, the assumption that I make, you know, I don't hold on to it despite other evidence, mm -hmm. But just being open about, yeah, I make assumptions and I can check that right. out and I can figure out if I'm right or wrong or, or yes, I'm right, but that goes a lot deeper, right? That that's a whole different way of getting to know people and interact with people. Absolutely. And I think the key to what we're talking about here is how do we, uh, and I, I, Johnny may have mentioned something about this earlier, but the word narrative comes up. How do we, how do we create a narrative and ask the right questions or design experiences for people and give permission to be able to know each other. That is what is missing so much in the world. Mm -hmm. People are at the core are looking for this. I mean, if you just, I don't want to, you know, you look at what's going on in the world and at the core, you know, how do people, people, I think with a lot of the disruption that's going on, it's really driving certain people in certain genres to get closer. And, and uh, there's a lot of fear being driven out there. So yeah. what do we do to offset that? So we do all just do our little part in terms to create these narratives and, and uh, human interactions that are deeply meaningful to us. And uh, once we do that, I think we have, we're empowered to uh, be able to create change in small, medium, large ways. Yeah. So, so in addition, Leonard, to, you know, creating that narrative that allows change and healing to happen, like what else can individuals bring to the table that helps them be effective members of a community, of a group? Um, besides, um, restate that question again. So, so you, you talked about like this open narrative that's not based in fear, but it's more like the possibility, like we can bring that to the table as individuals. Anything else you see is critical for individuals to bring to their communities and groups that helps them be effective members of those communities and groups? Well, I believe um, besides the human interaction and creating that safety, trust, and intimacy, it was trying to identify what are people's gifts? What are you, people really impassioned about? What are they good at? And uh, what can they contribute? And, and be able to create a design and forum to really identify that so people really know. Again, it's diverse. People bring diverse uh, uh, skills and, and, and gifts to, to uh, uh, an organization. Uh, the other part um, is there are more structured elements that really 
come into play that really help if you're really going to accomplish a goal or a task or, or a, a vision is what is the vision? So you get clear about your goals and sometimes defining those roles based on what's needed. So there is a certain definition that needs to occur um, in terms of roles and, and uh, structure in terms of a system. I, I can give, I can give an example of that. Um, I was asked by the Betty Ford Center to create put the face of uh, the Betty Ford on the alumni across the country. And there were so many people to reach all across North America. And I started bringing together volunteers or would volunteer to help accomplish this. So we, we start off by people sharing, but they had propensity to share in terms of you know, their recovery communities. And all they then is just clarifying their role. What do you, what do we need you to do? Meet somebody at the airplane when you get home, help do this, you know, shepherd the support group create a social event. There was not a lot of collaboration around it. They, their intimacy was so strong. They had four or five things to do that were very clear. And we would meet once a year and we would experience those things together. So they would actually have the experience and then take the intimacy came so strong that when we didn't have things to do, the group actually formed things on their own organically mm. in terms of re outdoor nature events and social events. And they began flying around the country and, and being together. And, uh, that was the ideal. That was a pinnacle of really uh, creating the intimacy and definition and roles and, and such. Mm -hmm. Well, Leonard, we want to thank you for your time today and uh, sharing your experience and your expertise with us. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. As always. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of this episode, remember that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story till it's finished. You can share your story with us on our Facebook page, Healing Paths, Inc., or on our website, www.thanksforsharingpodcast.com. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. At the end of another episode, we want to remind you that nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. And remember the prayer of the perfectionist. Help me remember I can't do it all. Help me to take things one step at a time, and that the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone, that I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.